Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we have a really special episode today because we've got an extraordinary guest that I can't wait to introduce you to. For starters, today's guest is a West Point graduate. She was a captain in the U.S. Army, and then she spent the last 10 plus years on the business side. Most notably, what we're going to talk about today is her experience at AAA, where she was an executive vice president and chief experience officer. Her current role makes her seem like she's not really a fit for today's episode. So today, she is the Chief Revenue Officer and the Senior Vice President of Innovation for an organization in Austin called Capital Factory. I know that was a really long introduction, but I can't wait for you to hear from Meg Vrabel. Hello, Meg. Thanks for being on the show today. Hi, and thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be awesome. So first... I suspect some of our audience may not be familiar with Capital Factory. So I'd love for you to give a quick introduction of Capital Factory before we get into the meat of our conversation today. Sure. So um, here at Capital Factory in Austin, Texas, we think of ourselves as the center of gravity for entrepreneurs in Texas. And we meet um, the best entrepreneurs and introduce them to their first investors, their first employees, mentors, customers. And on the other side of that is we also it is one of our missions to collide the corporate world with all of this startup innovation where they may not have previously been able to connect and, um, and, and collaborate and create some really incredible innovation for our future. We want to be that platform. That's awesome. Well, and to speak to all the value that Capital Factory brings to the market, I want to share that, that the company I lead in my day job, Skillful, we are a portfolio company with Capital Factory. For all of the reasons that Meg just said, there are so many places that we had a lot to learn as leaders of a tech startup, especially in that we're calling on some of the largest companies in the world and we needed counsel. And we sought out a relationship with Capital Factory in part because of fundraising, in part because of the mentorship, in part because of just the community of other tech startups that are dealing with similar challenges as we are. And so I'm very thankful for the relationship that we have at Capital Factory, and uh, that is what brought Meg and I together today. So we met at an event, and I was telling her a little bit about what we do at Skillful, and she said, oh, I, I kind of get that. I used to you know, be an executive at AAA, and the next thing you know, we're having a conversation about field service technicians and their use of technology in the field, and that's what led to Meg being on the podcast today. So so excited she was willing to come and share you know, some of her stories about it, but I, I can't wait for you to hear this because they're so germane to what we talk about our frontline innovators. And you had some really big challenges in terms of dealing with the contract workforce and things like that. So I wanna come back to that. Before we get into the meat of that, I'd like to ask for your take on what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless frontline workforce today. Sure, so I would say it's twofold. Um, I think that the, the first challenge is that, right, you're working with people, you're in a people business and there's always gonna be a little bit of resistance to change. Um, on the other side of that, they, the frontline workers that are so critical to these operations are so far removed 
from where often decisions are being made in a, in a corporate headquarters somewhere. So I think there's some really, there's some incredible opportunity to not only help with change management with those frontline employees, but also to uh, narrow that gap in communication between decisions in a corporate building and the frontline uh, operators that need to you know put everything into motion. Yeah, I love even just your hand gestures when you said narrow the gap. I think that's a really important part because I do think uh, people have heard me tell the story about a guy named Eric that I was visiting with out in the field, and he referred to his role as a frontline worker as getting the feeling of being on an island. He feels isolated from all the other things going in, on inside the organization. And so there is a physical gap, but then there's also kind of the, the virtual gap, the figurative gap of them just being left out a lot of communications and things like that. So I think that's a, a great way for us to start this off. So let's get back a little bit into your background. I know I gave the quick overview, but there's a lot of really interesting things that um, you've been through and, and experiences that you've had. So why don't you walk us through real quick, um, just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and, and what's made what made you so empathetic to the needs of frontline workers and, and how you, your career path has led you to be so effective in that role. Yeah. So I'll start at the beginning. Um, I graduated from West Point in 2006. And um, if, if you're familiar with the way, um, you know, when you are commissioned as a, as an officer in the army, you're, you go into some training, yes, but it's a matter of months. And then you are given your first leadership role. I mean, you are oftentimes, most often a second lieutenant that is put in charge of a platoon of anywhere from, this is broadly speaking, but 30 to 40 you know, adults. And you're most often 22 to 26, right? So it's a, it's a, um, a very fast learning curve. And you learn very quickly that the most important teammates that you have are those frontline employees. And something the Army does, in my opinion, very well is encourages any leader at any level to really get in the trenches, so to speak, um, with your soldiers, because you can't lead them, you can't help them, you can't guide them if you don't truly know what they are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And if that means literally in the dirt, then that's what you do. And so that was kind of the initial um, education that I got, and, and it wasn't an option, right? It is just what you did if you wanted to be um, a helpful officer and leading those soldiers. So um, from there, I had three different positions in the Army, um, a pl platoon leader, um, an executive officer, and then a battalion S1, which is admin and personnel for um, like a 600 person battalion or so. Um, same roles apply to each one of those roles. It's a new set of soldiers, um, but it's a different profession, so to speak, at each one of them. So again, every time you have a new position, back to the field, back to the trenches, like you have to understand what they're doing to be able to effectively lead them. So um, I got out of the army and I went into the business side of healthcare, a very small company, wasn't really sure what I needed, to, what I wanted to do, um, and really just got the lay of the land for business. Because it was a small company, I got to really see how an entire company uh, operated from the frontline account manager, which I was, all the way up to our financial controller, which, you know, because a small company, I got to kind of poke my head in the meetings and just ask questions yeah. and really, really learn. Um, and, and from there, I, I knew... I didn't have any direct reports for the majority of that um, that job, and I knew that that is not where I needed to be. It was awesome learning experience, but it was absolutely not what I wanted to be doing. I needed a team. I needed to lead people. Um, that's where I belong in this world. So I hopped over to a company called Allied Barton Security, and um, they later merged with Universal Security and became Allied Universal Services, which you may have seen on my LinkedIn 
Yep. And again, this is field services. So it's a, a lot at a lot of frontline workers kind of at the bottom of that period pyramid, excuse me. And then you have a regional manager of some sort and maybe a regional director and a regional vice president and so on and so forth. And so the, it repeated itself again, right? Like I had to go out into the field, stand a post, like understand what they did on an eight to 10 hour shift understand that the shoes that we bought them, how good are they to be standing for 10 hours? Things like that, like really tangible stuff. And again, what we talked about earlier, there's still that gap. There's, you know, corporate decisions being made in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And then my soldiers, uh, excuse me, my um, <laughs> professionals, are, you know, it's all kind of the same makeup. Yeah. But, um, yeah. My security professionals on the front line, literally standing at the entrance of, you know, Lockheed Martin, um, building or something like that. So it, it kind of has repeated itself and, and that uh, initial push into really understanding and appreciating what they do on a, on a um, daily basis is, is really what has helped me so much throughout my career. Um, That's awesome background. Yeah. And then keep the going. Next, no, keep going. The, the next jump takes me right into um, AAA, where again, there was a fleet of tow truck technicians. This one was unique because it was not only my employees, my tow truck, ne tow truck ne technicians, but also contracted uh, technicians, which just added a little bit of a, a different flavor and influence in there, but kind of the same recipe. Um, get out there, figure out what they're doing, figure out what their pain points are, so on and so forth. So that's kind of brings us to, I think, our, the rest of our conversation today. That's awesome. I love just going back to something that you said in the beginning and, and the connection. You know, we all use that expression. I was not in the military, yet I've probably used the expression in the trenches, which is, you know, derives from, you know, real world military circumstances, right? And it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that because that is really what we're saying when we talk about being in the trenches with others is going out to try to feel the same way that they feel to the extent that that's possible so that we can be better informed and make smarter decisions. And it's, it's something that we talk about on this show a lot, because when we see circumstances going awry in the real world, almost always we can track it back to decisions that were made without that visibility and without the leaders really having empathy for what was happening in the field. And so you've brought that, like literally even your comment about like get in the dirt, it just really kind of brings it home for me. Yeah. And it's just, it's non-negotiable, right? And and when in the trenches, it could be literally in the dirt and it could be just um, sitting at a desk with um, someone that's, their post is to be checking people in and out of an event or a facility. And it's just, it's every single one is different and every single person is different. Every single post is different. And um, without the understanding of, of how people operate in the field, you can't make good decisions for them in a corporate environment. So let's, let's talk about the field because your, your circumstances at AAA, you had a technology deployment that you were involved with and you had a real diverse set of circumstances and kind of user profiles. So maybe it would help to first just kind of frame, you, you've mentioned this already, but I'd like to just go in one level deeper. You had employees that were tow truck technicians, but then you also had an entire community of essentially third-party companies that were affiliated with AAA, but that also were doing the same job as your employees. So talk through that a little bit. Sure. So um, I would say we did grow our um, employee base in the field uh, quite a bit in my tenure there. So we went from, if memory serves, about 15% of our fleet being our employees. When I had left, it was almost 40%. So okay. 
that was that recipe, so to speak, was very similar to my past experiences. This was my first experience um, where the rest of that fleet that was serving members in the field was, to your point exactly, a third-party service. Now, it is a, um, we, we said it kind of tongue-in-cheek all the time, but it, a mom-and-pop shop in the mm -hmm. middle of Wyoming. And my territory spanned from Alaska, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, uh, Northern California, and Nevada. Almost forgot Nevada. And so if you can imagine Northern California dealing with a, uh, a, a mom-and-pop shop, there, there are no tiny mom-and-pop shops. This is a professional, um, large entity that really knows their business. They can't be slow. They have to be fast to adopt things. They're in the Bay Area, right? They're in the San Francisco Bay Area where all of that is happening. Well, that is part of our team. And then we've got the, what, the literal mom and pop shops um, in the Montana, Wyoming, Nevada, Utah specifically, and even rural Arizona, where um, they're just, it's a really small shop. Everything's very personal. Um, everyone knows everyone's first name. I mean, it just feels like a family when they are operating and we are, um, and we are partnering with them, which also comes with its own challenges, right? You can't uh, just sit at a corporate office and make a, a decision and then expect everyone to adopt it in the same way. There's just very different personalities and very different business structures out there. So the challenge became when we wanted to make a um, a change of any kind, specifically, we'll talk about technology adoption, of course, on, on this yeah. podcast, but um, you can't just make a decision and expect everything to change the next day. It is absolutely unrealistic. Um, and, and if anything, you're going to get a lot of backlash from it. So we, um, I took the advice of some really um, senior and um, uh, long tenured uh, managers out in the field um, that were just incredibly knowledgeable. They wanted to um, adopt this technology because they could see the benefits it had, not just to the driver, but also to the member that we were serving. But then it now becomes a group problem. How do we get all of these different type of people to adopt? And when it came down to it, we just had to have multiple strategies. You couldn't be so one-sided that you just said, oh, well, we're the big guys, so we're going to roll it out and they're going to go with it. it. It doesn't work that way when you're dealing with um, multiple regions and certainly the very diverse regions that we did. So this is really, it's a fantastic point. I, I do think I'm probably guilty of always being on the hunt for the sing silver bullet, the single yeah. answer that can answer as many questions as possible. And you're, you're making a really good point. There are a lot of different stakeholders with very different views of this circumstance in your organization. You've got the folks that work at the, the primary company itself, and then you have all of these different stakeholders. And even though they might fit into the same category of being a AAA partner, they're all very different sized companies and they all have their own agenda and they all have their other work that they're doing at the same time. So that's a pretty complicated environment. One thing that you talked about in, in the beginning, when I asked you about the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce, you talked about resistance to change. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I want to connect that back to how we can overcome that resistance tools, techniques, you know, the, any philosophy that we can bring to this that will make that process easier because it, it is a given that, you know, humans just, uh, even though we like to talk about change and our agility, you know, we tend to be kind of rigid and, and difficult. And I think particularly in some of these, our, uh, these roles that we're talking about, you said something to me when, when we were first preparing for today that some users just don't want to change because they don't want to do what the, the man wants them to do. That was the quote that I, I wrote down, right? And 
I get that. So how do you overcome that? What techniques did you find that helped to overcome that challenge? Uh, great question. And, and for us, it all came down to building relationships, because if you have someone that's resistant for that reason, forcing them or threatening them. And when I say threatening, of course, I just mean, you know, terminating a contract in a partnership or something yep. like that. Sure. That is the opposite of progress, right? So by us having a robust regional manager, so management out in the field, um, that can really not only themselves go in and, and forge a relationship with the management of the company, but also uh, forge that relationship with the drivers, the technicians, and the battery techs at each location. And, and it all comes down to that relationship. And them, once they realize, generally speaking, that they could trust us and that we weren't just doing it to save a buck, we were doing any technology adoption that we were rolling out to the field, our main goals were a better experience for the member and a better experience for the driver, for that tow technician, that battery tech. We want it to be more efficient. We wanted less mistakes with, you know, sending them the wrong location or something like that. Those were our two goals. And if we made those two work, we made it better for a better experience for the member and a better experience for the driver. The savings that, that a lot of businesses are looking for kind of came with it, right? Because then we don't have people that are, are spotting incorrectly, are spotting a, um, a job incorrectly. Um, we don't have people wasting time just sitting on the side of the road because they always know what's going on. So the money savings comes with that if you really keep the end users and those frontline employees and then whoever your, your clientele is, if you keep that in the forefront of what you're trying to do. Yeah. You, you talked previously about really helping each of those people that are going to be affected by this understand why it matters, how they benefit, how the people that they serve benefit. That was something that you talked about a lot that kind of, I'll admit it surprised me a little bit that those organizations would have connected as much to the customer experience. Because I, I think a lot of times we talk about what's in it for me as not, not what's in it for us. Let, let me rephrase that, that when we're talking to the, the frontline employees themselves, that we're trying to help what's, ex, what's in it for them. That's really what I'm saying. And you kind of gave me a different perspective on that, that sometimes what's in it for them is knowing that they're helping others. And that caught me off guard a little bit. Can you dig into that a little bit further? Absolutely. Um, what I loved about this job was that Every, well, uh, not maybe not 100%. Of course, there's always an exception here or there, sure. but the vast majority of this workforce is they just want to help people they want to serve. I mean, if you think about a job that you get for, you know, minimum wage plus a few dollars, it's a really hard day to be in Phoenix, Arizona for 12 hours out on the side of the road. And you just have to be a special kind of person to want to do that and to want to help members. And a lot of these members, it's one of the worst days that they've had in a while, right? Their car has just um, just completely broken down and then their battery died. They were in a minor accident, whatever it is. Like, So you're not always being wel welcomed by a, a friendly client, um, especially if they had to wait a little bit longer than they, they wanted to. So it just, it, that workforce is so special and so incredible because of the people that they are. They're there to serve. They're there to make their members happy. And a lot of the feedback when I would go into the field and I would sit in a truck and I would do a ride along was about improvements that we could make on our side to improve the experience 
for the members. Like that was coming right out of driver's mouth. That wasn't, well, we should change this because it's easier for me. That So rarely did we get any feedback like that. It was always what's best for the member. So that's what I just think was magic about about the towing force in general is like, it's a service. It's not just a job. And, um, and, and I think by doing both of those saying like, this will also benefit you, but in the end it benefits the members. And that's how we got it to click. That's how we got it to people to really internalize what we were trying to do. Yeah. I, I don't know if this would apply in the circumstance of AAA, but I, I've heard some other examples that you're reminding me of with field service technicians where they may not want to engage with the technology for the purposes of the employer. But when we help them understand that their colleague, the next field tech that's going to come out and work on the same piece of equipment is going to be better prepared, is going to know what you did so that he or she won't waste 20 minutes of their time working on the next work order, trying to troubleshoot things that you've already troubleshooted, <laughs> troubleshot. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting observation for me that that was a connection that I've seen made that was actually pretty motivating for some folks to say, oh, yeah, that because I, I maybe they had some selfish motivations, maybe they were thinking, well, sometimes I'm that second guy, <laughs> right? Sometimes I'm the one that's coming in. But there did seem to be like some camaraderie amongst all of the folks that would be doing that work. And that was a pain point that they could really connect with. And so if that was part of the motivation, like, hey, at the same time, you may be providing better reporting to the finance department also, but that's not what is going to motivate you to do this. What's going to motivate you is the fact that the next tech that comes out here will be better informed, right? Yeah, Did you see any things like that in, in your example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you put it into people terms and not corporate business terms, yeah, just listen differently. Because we've all been in situations where a, an entity is going to be corporate entity. It could just be a coach or whoever is forcing you um, to change in some way. And our natural, just it, our natural reaction is to push back. And um, when you put it in people terms instead of money terms or instead of time saving terms, things like that, it just people listen differently and people care differently. I mean, if, if there's a, a human on the other end of whatever you're trying to do, it's different than if they just think to your point, it's just financial data going into a computer. Like yeah. it's just, it's just different. Well, when we're asked to change, there's like a natural skepticism. I think that's just like an innate human quality. When we hear change, the first thing is, okay, why, what's wrong? There, there's something up with this change. And so humanizing it to the extent that you just described, I think is a great way for us to, to calm down about it a little bit and to really think through the, the positives there. I think one of the things that, we see a mistake we see made often with large companies is that the frontline workers themselves are the last ones to hear about things. Yeah. So they have the shortest amount of time to process the change. And so they're still in that skeptical phase when we're actually asking them to do this new thing. And I think that's probably some low hanging fruit for people that are in the role that you had before. And, and for anybody that's listening to this to say, like, just get out ahead of that, get that message out early and often, because really time can be to our advantage if we give them time to process and, and help to figure out the messaging that will really bring them on board. And I think that's something that we, we miss that opportunity a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. And not only, I was just making a note so I didn't forget, but not only give them more time, but get them involved at the beginning. 
Yeah. I mean, we had um, some of my regional managers would go out and like, hey, we're thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. We're thinking about automating a dispatch. Like, what do you guys think? So we were talking to them on day one, collecting feedback before we had even gone out to vendors and started sourcing people to help us with whatever technology we were trying to, um, we were trying to move towards. And I think that also, so they not only feel like they are a part of it and they were, I mean, not only they are part of the process, but also they know it's coming for so long. I mean, it takes a company of that size a long time to really change everything over. So by the time it really gets to the day of, they've got their, um, you know, their, their new device in front of them, they've been expecting this for months, if not longer. Yeah. I happen to be one of those people that, you know, I probably get distracted maybe almost by the next new shiny thing. So I have to work to, to reel that back in. But one thing I've learned, especially as a leader in our business today, not everybody is ex as excited about new things happening. So I'm probably on one extreme, but we've had a lot of people even on our team and our relatively small company that are on the other side of that extreme. And I think they probably fit the norm more than often, uh, more often than not. So just giving those people that time to embrace this. And, and I love your point about also just becoming a part of the solution and getting feedback from them. It, you know, it, it serves two purposes, at least two purposes. First, it just starts to get them to acclimate to this upcoming change. And then it also gives them a voice, which is hugely important. And that speaks to something else you mentioned, and I don't want to gloss over this, but you, you used the word trust a few times when you were setting the stage for this part of the conversation. And I think that's so paramount to the success of a program like this. How can we expect people to trust that what we're doing is ultimately good for them and for the customer and for the organization if they feel like they're getting blindsided at the 11th hour, right? Yeah. So one other thing you've mentioned to me previously, and, and I, I want to explore how you communicated this because I, I think this is a, a, another thing that I see missing a lot. You, you talked about with your contract partners in particular, and, and maybe this applies to everybody, but uh, you and I specifically talked about it as it related to the contract partners. Um, and you talked about how you were restructuring the relationship with them and we were going to be asking you to use this technology. But one of the things you said is like, you, you talked about this commitment to supporting them. And I, I mean, it sounds obvious, but I don't know that we always do a good job of explaining how that's going to work. Here's what's going to happen to help lower folks' anxiety about, well, what if something goes wrong? And what if we don't know how to use this? And this is going to disrupt our business and all of those other things. Can you tell us a little bit about how you introduced that conversation and, and to the extent that you can share the, the actual things that you put in place to help support them? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll back up just a little bit. When you mentioned trust, um, it took us a long time um, to build up some trust when I had gotten there because a few years before we had introduced almost like a bidding system um, where we were opening up a region. We were letting uh, each of these shops bid for a certain amount. And um, the, the leadership that was previously in place essentially just let everyone bid to the lowest dollar. And some many of these um, companies bid themselves out of any profitability whatsoever. So, um, you, you know, people under, like kind of figured out what was happening. Um, you know, there were shops shutting their doors. And if, if they're shutting their doors, not only are we losing a great member, but now we are losing the ability to serve members. So they'd quickly figured out that, whoops, we had like gone too far in that one direction. And we started coming back and we um, had given uh, price increases, et cetera. But 
once you had, we had broken that trust, it didn't matter who sat in my seat. We had a long way to go to um, build back that trust. And so any change that we made, their first thought was, oh, this is, this is bad again. Like they're trying to, you know, cut down prices again. So what we had to do is be really, really transparent with everything. Um, even how we priced out a call, we would we would break it down to each line item, how we figured in everything, how we figured in geography, how we figured in gas. I mean, you name it. Um, and I think only then did we start to gain back that trust. And it was all built on transparency. Because if you're doing something on an online forum, and that, that's how the bidding went, it was online, it was not personable, um, it was not personal. And it was essentially just clicking buttons. And so for us to not only be really transparent about new contracts, contract changes, I mean, I had our field team, when we went through a, essentially a contract refresh, we broke down every single piece of this contract and they had what, what we called lovingly as a cheat sheet so that they could go into any shop, no matter how advanced as a business professional that owner or manager was, and we could explain everything to them. And then they felt like no one was going to try to do anything sneaky, right? Like everything was in front of them. And not only was everything in front of them, but we were helping explain if there was any verbiage on there that they didn't understand, or if they didn't understand how we got to a number like that, that regional team, those regional teams were trained for months on how to talk to each section of that. And I really think that that was, um, it wasn't only critical, but it was so helpful because then everything else got a little bit easier. So I'll stop there and I'll get into the innovation part of it. No, but... I, I actually want to stay on this because you. I'm oh, glad I... you brought us back to that because I think it's a it's a really important topic. And and when we had spoken previously, you talked about a few individuals that were very impactful to that experience. There's your dog that you promised was going to yeah, bark on the call that. today. That's fine. Everybody, we have a dog barking in the background. You talked about some of the individuals that were, were very impactful. And one of the things that comes to mind, I hear our customers really struggle with the ability to scale those types of solutions. If my only answer to solving the problem is putting a warm body in front of every single customer or every single partner, like, okay, it, I can see that that gets us a really good result, but how do you make something like that scalable to where you can actually make the economics of that and just the, the resources work for something like that? Yeah, great question. So we had, a, you know, a, a kind of a pyramid set up where we had a region, you know, a rep for Montana and a rep for Wyoming and so on and so forth. And we made it so that one rep could reasonably get to every shop in say a month. Now, when we went to the Bay Area, there are so many shops and so many calls there that we had more than one rep. We had kind of regions within regions. And I think how we made it scalable is that we were, even though there is there was some pressure um, for us to just get things moving and get these contracts out and push the training, we took our time. And we had to push back a lot and we got a little bit of grief about it. But to us, doing the, the first step right, really taking our time, having everyone understand and adopt was going to make everything else easier. So we just took our time. We literally had one of those reps and maybe their manager, maybe not, maybe it was me, um, sit in every single one of these shops in person. And again, not every 
not every business has a, certainly in the startup or something, someone that has to move really, really fast, um, has the ability to do that. But luckily, unfortunately we did. And we just took our time. We continued to serve members along the way, but this was kind of the side project that we were making our number one priority. Yeah. You're really striking a chord with me on something like I've had it's only Wednesday when we're recording this, and I've already had several conversations with very large organizations this week who are doing the opposite of everything that you just said. And specifically, what I'm referring to is the amount of time they're allocating to the change management and training and supporting functions. And so there's this mindset that, hey, we don't have time or budget to do it. And but there's that, you know, old saying, like, if you don't have money and time to do it on the front end, you're always going to find the three X time and money it takes to get it right on the back end. I just don't understand why companies like there are memes about this on LinkedIn. Like how come we can't be better at doing that? What was it about your organization and your leadership and that of your supporting leadership above you and the organization that gave you guys the confidence to say, no, we're going to be intentionally slower perhaps, but deliberate and thoughtful and effective so that we could do this once and do it right. How did you get that through? Because yeah. most organizations are like, yeah, that sounds great, Meg. We got to get it done by the end of the month. So here's a time, make it happen. Yeah. 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 So um, how we push back is, um, and if anyone on my that has ever been on my team uh, will ever listen to this, they, everyone will laugh, but we essentially created a business case to show that doing taking a, a little bit of a slowdown for six weeks would in turn have better results for the members, the drivers, and to our bottom line, instead of having to train really fast and then having to go out and retrain. And so we put a business case together that literally included our assumptions for retraining um, turnover, because I mean, if you do it wrong too many times, those shops are going to leave you. They don't need, not all of them. Some of them did, you know, we were our, their main source of income, but not all of them, certainly not our rural companies. And, um, so we put together a business case just with basic financials, um, from our actual PL with a few assumptions that said, Hey, if we just do it right the first time, I promise you, which always also comes with a business case. I promise you, we won't have to go out and retrain a hundred times. Um, and versus if you force us into this, we will be retraining for a year and we will lose people and not just employees, but shops and partners. And, um, we, we made it come down to money because that's what speaks to, um, you know, anyone that would be forcing you into a very quick rollout and a very minimal change management situation. It's all coming down to money for them in the beginning. So if you can transfer that into money savings or, or something, um, to benefit, what you think is the right thing, then that's how we did it. And someone said, okay. So I, I love that you said it, it comes down to the money because I think sometimes when we're have, trying to have a strategic conversation with project teams that are working on initiatives similar to what you're describing today, a lot of times they say things like, well, there's, there's no money to do that today. We had 12 change orders with the app vendor that have, you know, caused us to already be 20% over budget. We're six months over time. And so we just can't do it right. So we're just going to do it this way. Right. And what's funny is oftentimes when I'm having these conversations, they often start with, well, the last time we rolled out technology, here's what went wrong. And they, they give me the list of all the things that have gone wrong in that scenario. Mm -hmm. And then I say, so tell me about this current project. And we start going into that and they say, yeah, but the, the problem is 
that the you know leadership is determined that we have to roll this thing out in the next 30 days. So while we're having this conversation, there's no time for us to do it right. And and I'm, this is like, you know, we're just banging our heads against the wall here, right? And I think companies do seem to struggle, and maybe it's just the effectiveness of the leaders that are trying to make this business case to say, yes, we do have to spend a little bit more on the front end, but if we don't do this, it's literally going to cost many X more than that later. And we're going to erode the trust of the people that we're asking to, to change. And we're probably going to negatively impact customer experience. And I don't even know how to put dollars on all the impacts to those things, right? In an environment where turnover and hiring frontline staff is one of the the largest problems that every CEO in America or globally is facing right now, how we can look at that and say, well, yeah, but there's no direct cost to that. That's crazy. There is a direct cost to that. And so if we're doing things knowingly that are going to piss off all the people downstream, it just seems unfathomable to me that we couldn't take a deep breath, take one step back and say, you know, the other thing you said is six weeks, right? So maybe that's part of it. You put a plan together that said, we need six weeks for this. And maybe sometimes people are thinking it's going to take six months or six more years. And that's maybe not practical to bring back to the business. But if you were able to carve out a plan that says it's only relatively short amount of time, it's six weeks and maybe six longer weeks than you wanted but it's six weeks and here's what it's going to save. Maybe that's the way to help make that more digestible by the other stakeholders. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, again, bringing it all back, you mentioned turnover, you mentioned several different things. And um, if you just take the time to explain all of that in the beginning, oftentimes it will, you know, it'll get you either what you want or close to what you need, um, et cetera. Because if you think about also whoever you are reporting to, if you're at a C-suite level, they are, have so many other business lines to worry about that they really can only understand say 10% of like what's going on in my division. And so just talking about how it's going to save money or it's going to cost money to rush it without putting any tangible numbers behind it isn't effective, right? Because they just, they're not going to be able to absorb really the, the great either benefit or, or um, problems that it'll, it'll cause without just seeing it in black and white data. So to take one day, I mean, if you have a good financial analyst, one day to put together something like that, it, it could just potentially save you so much time and so much heartache. You just and said it, something. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, just you, you, the adoption of it in general. You, you said something I have to come back to, which is that the senior leaders that you're making this case to may only understand 10% of the, the challenge that you're describing. And we've talked about this, though I didn't say it as, as um, you know, concisely as you did. I think that's a really great way to think about it. I think a lot of times when people in mid-levels in the organization are pitching senior leadership about changing an approach, I think it comes off as bitching and whining about this being an inconvenience for us, yeah. right? I think they're, the way that they're communicating doesn't come off with the level of credibility that it takes to get through. And, and perhaps there's a misunderstanding that that CSUE executive, because of the role that they're in, has a deeper understanding of all the things going in the organization. And so we would say something along the lines of, hey, boss, don't you understand that this is going to impact this and it's going to make it better for the workers and it's going to make it for better for our customers. But that's like, wah, 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 right? Yeah. It doesn't really connect. And I think that's a really good point. I, I don't think that we get down to 
the hard facts well enough to really make that case. And so it comes off as bitching. And I, I, I think that falls on deaf ears. It, it absolutely does. And I laugh because um, I remember so clearly, I mean, if you th think back to how I, I talked through my career, I was in, you know, health, the business side of healthcare, and then I was in private security and then, um, and well, in the army, obviously. So I came with a skill set um, that, you know, a leadership skill set, problem solving, sure, like great, the fundamentals, but I also didn't show up at AAA with 20 years of road service experience. Yeah. What my um, mid-level managers and directors did so well was not only, hey, get get your butt into the field um, and also go to, you know, Montana when it's negative 20 degrees, but yep. also put it in a way that I could, I could digest it so that I could work with a financial analyst to make it then kind of like translate it into business so that then my CEO could digest it. Like they did such an incredible job. Um, and I just, I don't think that we would have been as successful as it, if, if they weren't outspoken about it, but also made it easy for me to understand because I'm never going to know as much as they do. If they've have a 20 year um, career in this, I, I'm just, there's no way they can bring me up to speed in a month. Right. So yep. they had to break it down. They had to get me into the field. They had to really show me end to end, like, um, which I, this is something else I'm kind of going off on a, on a tangent, but it's no, really no. important that I don't think many people do. You get into a role, leadership role, and you want to make changes. You want to look at your 30, 60, 90 plan. You want to like get going, right? Like if you are a motivated professional and what we really should be doing is taking time up front to look at the entire experience, not just of your, uh, your customer, which people do, but also of every other person involved in that process. And, and um, I'll never forget, his name is Chris Holmbaum. And he literally made me call every, you know, call our dispatching office or call, call receive office. Like then I would have to call and go sit next to the, the dispatcher. Like I had to, he made me see every single point of it and then go out and go get the member as well. And it, it just, once you understand those fundamentals, then you can build on it from there and you can bring your knowledge from elsewhere. Um, and it's complimentary, but until you really do that, you're just, you're not going to get it. And then that then handicaps you to be able to make a case to whoever you need to. Because yeah. if I get it, I couldn't make a good case. I have found, I love doing those ride-alongs too and, and going out to, to see how those workflows are happening in the real world. And I find it brings so much credibility back to the conversations when I could say, no, I, I, when I was out in the F-250 pickup yesterday, this is what I saw. When we come back into the conference rooms with whiteboards and big screens, you know, it makes that conversation so much more grounded. And I think it's hard to argue with those real world experiences. Like I'm, I'm not saying this because it's my opinion. I'm saying it because I actually witnessed it yesterday when my shoes got dirty and I was actually out in that truck, you yes. know, yeah. and that, that carries so much weight. I'm curious about going back to the making the business case. I'm really, I'm stuck on one thing here that I think a lot of our audience has struggled with. Oftentimes, it's very difficult to turn the cost into a line item that people believe. Mm -hmm. It's not an incremental, it's not like saying, hey, if we implement this, we're going to stop buying paper. And right now, our paper costs us $100,000 a month. And I'm saying we're going to reduce that by 50%. So our paper expense line item will go down by 50%. It's not quite as tangible as that many times. 
And I'm curious if you faced that, like, okay, it's, it's going to make the drivers happier, you know, the tow truck technicians in your case, or it's going to help with retention of our contract partner community. Were there things like that, that contributed to the business case that were hard to really put a dollar amount to where somebody didn't just say, yes, that's probably true, but that's not going to like, give me cash to pay for what you're describing. Right. How did you overcome that? Um, so yes, and we had to get creative in some ways. I'll give a really basic example, um, is, and we essentially, sometimes we had to make business cases within business cases, right? So I said, if I was trying to prove a point in this business case that, um, if we roll this out too fast and we freak people out essentially in rural Montana, in Western Montana, and we lose a shop right up here. And they decide, look, you're only 10% of my calls. I can survive without you. I'm, I'm running high, you know, um, PD calls, whatever. Um, if we don't have them, then all of those members that call us in this area, we now have to call a different shop. And then, so the first question was like, who cares? As long as they've been trained, as long as they've got AAA on the side of their truck, we don't care. Well, if you think about, we pay our contractors based on the mileage that they drive. So if I don't now have this one right in the middle of that region, I'm pulling from all these other regions. And I would just say, look, if this one call, I broke it down to one call, used to cost us, and I'm making these numbers up, but used to cost us $90 in rural Montana because we had that shop. If we don't do this right, our turnover costs us not just, you know, having the, the regional manager having to go out and find someone else and do the contract, like right. not just those people hours, but also that one call now has to go to Cowspell over here. And that's now a $180 call. Right. And if you take that and then we multiplied it by the number of calls annually in Montana. And then right. it just, it it's, if you don't break it down enough, it's hard for people to explain. And there were parts of the business case that maybe we didn't, we couldn't really put a number on. That's an easy one to put a number on, but maybe that we couldn't put a number on like goodwill for for instance. I mean, right. we, we really have very limited control over how those drivers treat our members. And we, our survival is on member satisfaction. Because if you think about AAA, the, the reputation is what, and, and road service is the number one reason members sign up. So if we yeah. all of a sudden have drivers out there uh, that are treating members poorly, and then we're getting in return poor member satisfaction scores, I mean, it just, so could I say that that driver right there is going to cost us a lot of direct money? Maybe I can make some assumptions and get us to a number, but it, there were some things like that where we kind of just had to say, like, you need to trust us. If these people are out there and they don't feel like they can trust us, they don't feel supported, they feel like they're all alone with some technology we just threw at them, they are not going to go above and beyond for exceptional service of our member. And it all comes back to us, right? And so that sticks out as one thing in a business case that I, I couldn't quite, because obviously I can't say of all of these drivers, 10% will now treat our members poorly. Right. I don't know that. But if we kind of just said, well, it's going to be more than one, right? And for every single one of those, and we all know that someone that had a bad experience is more likely to send back a survey than someone had a good experience. So all of those are going to come back to us by how much, not quite sure, but it just, 
will. And by then packaging that into some solid numbers and some solid data, you know, we, we got our point across. But yeah, sometimes you just have to, sometimes you can put some data to it. Sometimes you have to just make a really, really concerted effort to, to make some general statements that, but that are really strong and do have some backing to them. Yeah. I think um, that's a great story. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, I think it's just such a testament to, to your leadership. And, and the overarching message is that it should always cost less to do it right the first time than it would to repeat over and over again yes. across all areas. And my cost is not just hard dollars, but it's the cost of employee satisfaction, the, um, the cost of customer satisfaction, the cost of turnover of both of those things, customer sat and, and employee satisfaction, right? There are all real costs there. And all of this can be mitigated substantially by doing it right on the front side. And in your leadership style of being very um, deliberate and pragmatic about that approach, I can just imagine, you know, is incredibly powerful to bring that message up to, to the C-suite. And um, I hope for the other folks that are listening, I hope that they can be motivated to, to pause and really think about instead of getting frustrated that their leadership's not listening, which I think is maybe one of the things that I... Whether people say that out loud or not, I think that's really what we're hearing is they're frustrated because they feel like their leadership's not listening into, to them. And so they're kind of giving up and saying, well, screw it. I'm just going to roll this thing out and we're going to see what happens. Yeah. And they know it's not going to go well. They know that. That's typically why I'm having the conversation with them because they have an awareness about this. They know it's not going to work well. And yet for some reason, they feel like they don't have another option. So um, I hope your explanation gives them some motivation to maybe take a different tact on that. We are already running out of time. Um, I am absolutely loving this conversation. I feel like I could double the length of this. Um, but to kind of wrap things up, is there one piece of advice of all the things you've probably already said it, but maybe there's something else that's sticking out in your mind that you haven't had a chance to share with us yet? For other folks who are in a similar position as you have been in the past dealing with all of the variables, is there a piece of advice that you would give to say, how can you really... Um, you know, make this better for, for the business overall, whether that's the frontline workers themselves or, or the overall, all the other stakeholders. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should have something really monumental to say right now, but it, it all comes down to the basics, get in the field, listen to your team. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to make everyone happy because that is completely unrealistic. But if you're doing those first two, you just have such a better base to be able to help them when you are your their liaison basically to the corporate um to the corporate office and lastly i would say not just listen to them but trust them and be willing to put your neck out if you really feel like you, this is the hill you want to die on be willing to do it as a leader especially if you're a generalist like you'll find another job if really the worst happens but like if you don't take those chances and you're not willing to put your neck on the line and you're not willing to die on a hill for your team um you, you're probably just not going to get the best outcome and and not saying that you always have to you end up, end up dying on it you may not but you're willing to die on a hill if it really you know and your team knows that it's the right thing to do yeah you, you did just say something really important um, <laughs> as your wrap up, which makes me want to dig in with another, at least a statement, if not more questions. But, you know, you said, we, I've never heard this one time, you have to trust them. Yeah. That's really interesting, because what we often talk about here is how we can get them to trust us. 
And I think you just pointed to something that is often missing and maybe something that we should focus on more. I should add this to my list of questions that we're, you know, we're talking about here in the show, because I, I think you're right. I think that's part of the mutual respect. They do have that firsthand experience. And I think oftentimes the people that we're working with at the corporate office in these organizations who are trying to solve these challenges, um, the good ones are trying to earn the trust of the men and women in the field. I wonder how often they're thinking about the trust that they need to extend to those folks to see them as credible contributors in this. And if perhaps the disconnect there is actually part of the friction that kind of goes unmentioned. Yeah. And I'll get, I'll stand my soapbox for one more statement and I'll get off. Yeah. But okay. Team that I um, end up leading and just get a new job and get a new team right off the bat. I trust every single one of them hundred percent. They don't have to earn it. They have it. And I let them know that um, the vast majority of people are good people. They want to help. They want not only their team to be successful, but the company to be successful for them to have a job and have good benefits and have a 401k and all that stuff. And um, I have gotten pushback on that a lot um, from past leaders. Um, uh, and I just feel like now 20 years in, um, it almost always works out for the best. Every once in a while, there's a bad egg in there, but it's just so rare um, that if you trust your team completely from day one, you will get better results quicker. There's just, I mean, I haven't put the business case to that yet, but I, I could in a day. I mean, it's just, it's so obvious to me versus coming in and being skeptical of everyone. And then you have yeah. this whole, this huge mountain to climb before you even get to work. So that's my favorite advice to give any leader, not just anyone, you know, uh, managing frontline uh, employees, but any leader. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I really, really appreciate you carving out time. I especially know that in the current role that you've fulfilled today, this is, you know, outside of, of the things that you're really thinking about, but I see just a really genuine passion in you. And I did the first time we met talking about these things, and I'm so glad you carved out the time today to spend with us. So thank you very much, Meg. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on here. This has been a big part of my career and um, I've had so many great experiences um, out in the field. So yeah, I can tell. That's awesome. All right. Well, we need to wrap it up there to the audience. I hope you have found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. Please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. Reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And as you always hear me say at the end of the show, we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you know somebody out there that's innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Meg, thanks again. Thank you. 